Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. You'll also find recent episodes in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and all of those links are available at thejazzsession.com. My thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They are online at respectsextet.com. Please buy all their records. Thank you. And also follow Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. He tweets very humorously at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. This is show number 278, which means there are 22 shows left until the big 300, by which time I need to have 100 members, which means I need 60-something more people to join the show by that time, or there's no number 301. That's as simple as that, really. So please do become a member. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people have listened to this show over the last four years, and 36 have chosen to become members, and I, I really need your help, or else this thing's just not going to keep going. It's as simple as that. So please do become a member at thejazzsession.com. You can do it for as little as $10 a month, or if you want to pay in one yearly sum, you can do it for $110 a year. I know some of you could afford to do the higher membership levels as well. Just, there's just no question about that. And so please, if you can afford to do that, it would greatly benefit the show. My guest today is the saxophonist James Carter. He has placed himself in tons of different musical situations, and he's in a very interesting one now on his new album, Caribbean Rhapsody. Here's a sample of it. My guest is saxophonist James Carter. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, it's good to be here as well, too, Jason. So I saw you last night at the Blue Note, and I do want to talk about the forthcoming record. But I first mm -hmm. wanted to say that I noticed your music last night had just an incredible ability to just draw joy from people. I mean, people were laughing, sometimes in strange places, but they were laughing at the Blue Note. That's a good thing. They were, they were you know just kind of swaying back and forth. People were smiling. And as I looked around the room, I just thought, sometimes you almost forget that this music can have that effect on people too. And it seems like maybe that's an important thing to you. I think uh, that's an important thing for all of us. I mean, when you look back into um, the annals of history and what uh, the arts in general, but in particular with music, um, it's supposed to provide uh, either healing or some sort of an escape, you know, uh, sense of euphoria or whatever, you know, the uh, listener chooses to uh, prescribe to themselves, you know, at the time that they're hearing something. And uh, 
the great thing is the return at the end of the performance when people are, yeah, I dug this, or if they're able to itemize a particular thing, or uh, or if they dug the performance in general, and uh, or our mannerisms or whatever on stage. Because uh, with uh, the organ trio, this is our tenth year actually in uh, being together as a unit coming up June. So. Uh, Pretty much we're able to, because of us touring together and uh, knowing each other from a personal standpoint, sometimes the the personal winds up getting, you know, mixed into the uh, performance and all that. Or if we hear something, you know, that somebody did or whatever, oh, man, you shouldn't have did that. Oh, and, you know, <laughs> and it's like it's not a, a rehearsed stoic sort of thing like we're going to play and now we're going to do this and now we're going to do that. And now we're, you know. Um, Early on in the uh, week, there were uh, two sisters that were sitting up front, and they were actually eating chicken wings, Caesar salad, and stuff like that. And they were, you know, and you could hear all this. And I decided to uh, change the um, program on account of them, uh, (laughs) the way that they're eating, just the way that they were sitting and grooving and eating at the same time. And uh, I played this other piece instead of the one I had uh, mentioned earlier that we were going to do in the set list. So uh, I said, in honor of the, the 12 piece in the biscuit up here, I'm going to change, you know. And and as a result of that change, it brought a different vibe to the house. And, uh, you know, I think it might have asked, you know, for a couple of uh, more wing orders to come out and all that. So, you know, it was just great all around, you know, uh, financially as well as, uh, you know, the vibe in general. And to show that we were elastic and, you know, the, that we weren't just up here playing like X, X, Y, Z amount of tunes and getting off the stage in time or whatever. I mean, we were pretty much time bending and, uh, you know, music bending as well to accommodate what was happening in the house. Sure. And I think that can only happen with a group that you have that type of a rapport with where you're able to, hey, man. In some instances, like I, I feel like playing. No, man, you said you were gonna play this. Or I left my piece of music upstairs or something, you know. And then it's a train wreck from that end. But with uh, Leonard and Gerard, Leonard King and Gerard Gibbs, I'm talking about. Um, hey, man, I feel like doing this. You know, it's a matter of just switching gears, and you know, we just go like. You and I are uh, almost exactly the same age, and so 22. And so um, I know that, uh, and I, I know roughly the era of music in which which is contemporary to both of us. And yet, you seem really viscerally connected, connected in a real way, an emotional way, um, to all the repertoire that you play, almost no matter what era it comes from. And it and it doesn't sound like repertory when you play it. It doesn't sound like, I think I should play this, and therefore I'm playing it. It sounds mm-hmm. like, this is me, and therefore I'm playing it. Can you talk about, about that, how you've established that connection with music of different ages, including um, our own? I think it's very essential to uh, listen to as much music as you can and find yourself within it. Therefore, like you were saying, when you listen, therefore you become. You know, and uh, it's not something that's foreign to you anymore. Just like with uh, when I was growing up, basically we were listening to all the, you know, the funk bands, R&B, you know, stuff that was popping out, you know, Sliding Family Stone, Parliament Funkadelic, Brass Construction, Barcades, you know, Chic, whatever. And at the same time, 
while I was hanging with my, you know, moms and stuff, I, and and in the house in general, there's all types of uh, genres of music that were being played from Beatles all the way through, you know, because I'm coming from a house with uh, four other four older siblings, you know, and they had their various, you know, different tastes and whatnot. Um, so I can connect to, you know, the music that was happening at the time, but also even before my time, because of what was being played, I had a certain connection with it by being familiar with it, you know, from my formative years. But from an actual practitional standpoint, I had to get another connection with it because now I'm externalizing, you know, my interpretation of something that I've heard before or, you know, to somebody else, you know, or to an audience at, at large. So um, I feel it's very essential, you know, uh, to try and not repeat, of course, you know, and uh, to make the music your own because uh, I think nowadays when you look back at certain pieces, they have uh, eternal themes to them. And I think if somebody regardless to the generation or whatever latches on to that eternal theme inside or something like let's say for example uh my girl you know from the temptations um everybody can identify with a certain fact that there was a girl or a certain object of you know your desire that you uh aligned yourself with that made you feel those uh you know uh, things that Ruffin was talking about, sunshine on a cloudy day, you know, cold outside, I got the month of May because of this individual. And, uh, you know, songs like that aren't really made anymore, you know. Now you got things coming out like, oh, this is mattress music and stuff. I mean, you know, there's certain, you know, identification with that, you know. But um, something that can be, given to anybody regardless of age from 2 to 92 I mean you can't see yourself doing mattress music in front of like pre-adolescents talking about I'm a Fiji and getting you know because <laughs> it's just not appropriate but right. at the same time there's a certain level of innocence in like my girl um in songs you know or the like that had particular themes you know and because of your personal experiences they're not going to be the same as the one who originated you know, be so that opens you up to the complexities of your own life, and and it also helps you to confront the honesty of your own, you know, relationships and stuff like that. And you know, I've uh, had quite a few, you know, current and otherwise that are like, wow. So you use that, you know, and either you know you make lemonade out of lemons or. Uh, you make ambrosia out of, you know, the nectars that are already in front of you. And, you know, you just make it happen and you make it edible and uh, edifiable for the audience in general. Almost every review that's written about you, every piece of video I've seen or people talk about you, they use the word virtuoso, and deservedly so. Did you make a decision at some point in your life that I need to get to the point where my instruments just disappear, where they're not... I don't ever have to think about whether I can do this thing on the instrument, and I only have to externalize the music that's inside. And that's always a perpetual uh, quest, regardless of what the instrument is. Um... 
I mean that uh, the virtuoso thing wasn't a particular uh, thing I was striving for, flamboyant technician or you know whatever folks say. I mean that's that's what folks choose to hear. Then fine, you know. Um, but that wasn't you know what I was really trying to strive for. Like okay, I'm going to be technical or I'm going to do this and you know right. and then, you know. You know, all that <laughs> stuff. Um, there's a certain uh, feeling that goes into any piece at any given time. And uh, depending upon the listener and what they're able to, you know, forecast as to what they're going to say, uh, I heard, or, you know, in this, most of the time they come out just hearing the technical aspect of it or whatever. And just like I was saying earlier, just like with. Us coming to grips with um, certain human qualities that are in particular pieces, I feel that humans as listeners need to come with those same grips as well, too, you know, as being an informed listener, you know, being a, a patron in the audience. You know, it's, I think there, uh, back in the days, it was really different because in talking with people, from the 30s and from the 40s and, you know, was musically coming up um, and even into our era, so to speak. Um, there were audiences that were hip, that were, you know, where, like, jazz was, like, the popular medium of the day and all that. Oh, man, you played that last week, you know. It's like, when was the last time you ever heard, a, you know, an audience member come up to you and say, man, you played that last week, or you did this, or you did that, and I, why don't you, you know, go back to this and all that, and, you know, and it actually made sense, you know, as opposed to now where you get uh, folks, why don't you play that gold clarinet some more, and, and they were trying to refer to the soprano, <laughs> you know. So um, it just comes, you know, with both sides being back in touch with what really makes us great, and, and uh, it's always with us as musicians being in touch with our, our human side and having the uh, facilities in order to externalize that human side at any given time. And for the listener, it comes to doing the, you know, the research and uh, listening and uh, being able to take other people into the experience that they're about to, you know, embark upon going to see at whatever club or function. Yeah. 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 I've been talking a lot recently to the, the different members of the cookers, uh, George Cable, Cecil McBee, and Billy Harper most recently. Mm -hmm. And in some of those conversations, and what makes me think of this is you saying you played that last week. No one could say you played that last week now because there's no chance they saw you last week unless they came twice to the same very brief run at the same club in the same city. Mm -hmm. And those guys were talking about the fact that you would sometimes be a place for a couple of months and, uh, you know, I think it was George Cables who was set, talking about, you know, I'm, it's Monday night, I'm going to see Monk, because he just knew Monk was going to be there on Monday mm -hmm. night at whatever club. And that was the same in May and June and July. And it gave that audience a chance to become informed, because they had a chance to, to repeatedly be exposed to the music as it was being worked out on stage, mm -hmm. which it seems like our audiences. I mean, I do agree that audiences have to do some work. It also seems like they're in a bit of a tough place sometimes because it's hard for them to do the work. It's hard for them to build up a connection with an artist who comes to town once a year or whatever it might be. I don't know how you feel about that. That's my opinion about it. I feel it's like Nike. Just do it. <laughs> Fair you enough. Know, because if you wind up getting into, well, I ain't got enough time. Just, I can't do it, you know. And uh, especially nowadays when you have things like YouTube and uh um, websites where folks are putting up live streams or whatever the sure. case is. Um, the work is almost kind of easy in that sense. So when you are able to see them live and don't have to depend upon these uh, technological uh, advances, you're informed, you know. And then you're also informed of what other people think as well, too, give it, you know, whether it's justified or not. Because some people just like to dismiss stuff just in general. Like, uh, case in point, I looked at some Anthony Braxton uh, things on YouTube, mm -hmm. and um, there were a couple of particular things when he was at the Iridium back in 07. Um, and I think it was the Ghosts. I'm trying to remember what the actual name was. It was some sort of 
Ghost Rider Suite or something like that. And he had like a violin, uh, bass, cello, something configuration that was going on. And just looking at the comments below, what is this artsy fartsy stuff? And then, you know, and then, uh, then one particular individual wrote, everything they told me to, you know, not to do is what's being done here and stuff. And it's like, wow. And then what is, who did this? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, what, they ought to, you know, that no wonder R&B and blah, 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 get so many hits. And, you know, folks want to listen to music with lyrics and all that. Right. And then folks write in in defense at whoever wrote the, you know, comment at such and such, uh, Braxton just recently got the MacArthur grant for three hundred thousand dollars. When was the last time you heard such and such do this and this, that, and other? So, you know, it goes back and forth. Where um, you can be informed, you know, but at the same time, you can draw your own conclusions. And uh, when it comes time that you, you know, have the time to see that individual live, you know, it's it's your experience, you know, and you're more enriched as a result of that. But it really winds up to the individual just going out and saying, look, I'm going to do this. Because when we're touring over in Europe or in Japan or whatever, there are people that come or when we're here. Oh, I came from Russia. I came from such and such. I found out you were going to be in town and I was supposed to leave today, but I decided to extend my ticket or whatever the case was. Right. And when we're over in Europe. Oh, we went 600 kilometers to come here to hear you because it's the closest that, you know, to our town or whatever. And, you know, the folks make the effort. And it's not their music. So, you know, you figure with somebody that's in-house, you know, it'd be, it'd behoove you to do it. But, sure. Hey. <laughs> so it can be made. Yeah. You know. No, I think that's a fair point. got a, a new record coming out uh which is just gorgeous and uh I'm, I'm really excited for people to hear it um can you talk a little bit about how this uh, uh orchestral project got off the ground and how you became involved in it? yes um in november 2001 i was playing a uh, gig with kathleen battle it was in uh it was north carolina no it was baltimore sorry um and after the end of the uh, gig, my manager, Cynthia Herbst, came backstage with uh, composer Roberto Sierra and formally introduced us. We exchanged pleasantries and all that, and he really dug the concert. Hey, baby, I really, you know, dug what you were doing out there. And uh, Cynthia's also put me in touch with uh, some of your discography, and, you know, I really like it. I see all the uh, different possibilities and stuff that's going on. I'd like to make a concerto for you. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, oh wow, okay. Uh, I kind of tread it lightly because the year before, a Dutch composer had similar uh, aspirations, but his concerto was already completed. 
but he felt that I was the individual that could possibly play it. Um, and of course, I wasn't able to do it because I had a full plate touring, uh, laying in the cut and chasing the gypsy during that time, uh, which was simultaneously released. Um, so I had to pass on that. So I felt like this was another one of those uh, situations that were coming up. Um, after talking with him and showing uh, his enthusiasm, I treaded lightly and said, okay, let's uh, meet, you know, next uh, month in, uh, in Midtown. So middle of uh, December, we met at uh, Carol's studio where he had some ideas or fragments, musical fragments of ideas that were laid out. And I played them and uh, there were a couple of ideas that really stood out, like uh, the one fragment which wound up becoming the beginning uh, phrase for the uh, second movement, which started... like that and put that one aside and there were a couple others you know what I went and looked through and it was a very you know promising meeting because of the fact unlike the uh, previous concerto that uh, this uh, the Dutch composer had eyes for I actually had a say in what was you know going to be made so it really felt like a piece that was eventually going to come you know more custom tailored for me but at the same time it was still classically, you know, demanding. Um, so I'm in the process of, you know, being in the, basically conceiving it right then and there. So about a month later, I look up and this big manila envelope shows up at our door. It's the first movement. And pulling it out, the first thing is I, I see all this ink slinging and stuff going on. <laughs> you know, and I see a bunch of uh, barred notes that are like in groups of like seven, eight, ten, <laughs> nine, five, you know. So I called him up. I said, hey, baby, what you trying to do to me? This is only the first movement. I don't know. Read the tempo marking, baby. Oh, it was 120. <laughs> you know, like, okay. The first thing was with all this ink going on, not only the ink, but there was also uh, Roberto didn't know how to score like the improvisational aspect. So he left some of the bars open. Hmm. And uh, in order for me to, you know, make it a lot more cohesive, I. Uh, use jazz notation in order to hear um, what was going on. So I had him send a uh, an accompanying, you know, computer-generated track to go along with it, which he did. 
and I could hear where the bass and everything was going and uh, what chords were being here and use those as uh, sonic cues in order to keep the piece, you know, cohesively together because there were uh, certain spots throughout there where I'm actually doing cadenzas and just improvs in general while the uh, other cadences are going on. So in order for those to make sense and to be, you know, properly uh, harmonically correct with the uh, orchestra, it was very essential to make these notations. After doing so and uh, making the, the notation like for uh, the first cadenza, you know, giving a go-ahead to uh, physically bring the band back in, like the orchestra back in, in order to conclude the first movement, for example, um, was very essential. Same with the third, end of the third movement going into the fourth, was the fact that uh, there's another cadenza and it's leading from the scherzo into this so I had to make a uh, conscious decision to you know do some syncopation and just you know play freely with the elements of the uh, the piece itself you know so that I'm not just drawn at first I was drawn from outside influences or whatever and but um, I felt that later on, in order to keep it, you know, the piece congealed and uh, keep all the harmonic and uh, thematic, you know, poems together, it was best to draw from the piece itself as opposed to bringing in byproducts and all that. Because there there's still enough musical information in there that lasts for years that I can continue to draw from and even some things that I haven't even heard yet. And I've done several performances over the years since uh, its original uh, premiere in 2002. It was about the mathematics at first, you know, keeping everything together so that orchestra and myself don't wind up train wrecking and it, you know, comes together. But later on, as we became, as I became comfortable with the mathematics, I started noticing the the genre uh, or the gender selections that I started making for the uh, the soprano and the tenor, you know, male and, you know, female and male respectively. Um, really cool because that brought about another wellspring of uh, information that I could you know deal with uh, in terms of making the piece that much more organic and uh, more complex because as we all know some relationships are complex and uh, particularly those between male and female and all that you know so um and were those instrument selections those were yours. The the were the piece the pieces were not scored either for soprano or tenor. That was something that you brought to it. 
Oh, uh, Roberto heard uh, both of these previously. Okay. With uh, with Kathleen Battle, because that's what I was playing with. It was uh, soprano, tenor, and uh, alto flute and bass clarinet. Okay. At the time, so uh, but he took those two and decided he even wanted to do something. I see you play baritone too. Like, no, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, hold on, you know. That's you know that's a big plate to deal with just with the soprano and the tenor. Sure. And uh, in fact, um, after it was noted that it was going to be for soprano and tenor, uh, I went into finding which two soprano and tenor were going to actually be conducive to do the uh, concerto with. So I went through about six, seven, some pairs of. Uh, instruments that I have uh, of different brands and different vintages to see which ones would, you know, fit. And I wound up settling with the Series 3s from Selmer all the way up until the recording because since that time I, had, uh, I hadn't been playing Selmer. I started playing P. Moriats, which is a uh, Taiwanese uh, company uh, in 2006. And I had these two Selmers that were specifically just for the concerto alone. I didn't play anything else on them after they I deemed them for the concerto. So, um, but I felt that I was really trying to be true to P. Moriart, you know. So I said, uh, let me uh, see if I can get some instruments. This was like a real big gamble because of the first time that this piece was being recorded. I'm also breaking in these P. Moriart instruments. The gamble paid off in the sense that uh, Giancarlo, who was with me on a previous uh, run of this uh, concerto when I was playing the Selmers, was also, you know, on hand. And he said, I really dig these instruments in comparison to the other ones. So uh, it was a feather in P. Moriart's cap that uh, they were able to get these, you know, two instruments together in such, you know, short amount of time. Can you talk a little bit about, I think for many people, they... Including me, I'd like to know more about how you decided what which specific horns fit, what you were what you were looking for, how you came to that determination. <clears throat> well, the uh, the musical uh, aspect of alone, you know, seriously determined that because there's some uh, kind of difficult passages in the second movement in particular that really commands for the. Uh, the keyboard to be right there at your fingertips. Otherwise, you'd be reaching all over and, you know, the the moment might be gone in order for you to execute it. Um, the So that's literally something as specific as the the way the keys are arranged? Specifically not only that, but also the intonation, okay. um, just feeling the horn in general. But uh, some of the passages, uh, the way that the Series 3 was set up, particularly like the soprano, which uh, the Series 3 has a high G key I had to uh, use in order to go from like uh, the E flat, the side E flat over to F sharp. I would just hit the high G key instead of putting all the other stack notes. Now, like we'd normally do if you're holding a note, but this right. was like a... You know, it was almost like a true... And just hitting the high G key would do that, but I found a different way of, you know, doing it on the P. Moriarts, which doesn't have the high G key, and it made it even more uh, accessible. Okay. So, um, and like we said earlier, the uh, conductor dug the horn, you know, selection this time around, too. So it was a good fit, and for it to happen in such a amount of, this was within a week's time, because what happened was uh, right before... The recording in uh, December, I was already over in uh, Tha- uh, in Thailand playing this uh, festival in ba- uh, Bangkok. And Tha- uh, Taiwan is basically like three and a half hours away. So uh, I told the uh, the president of the company, Alex Shea, that uh, I'm getting ready to do this uh, concerto. I've been doing it on uh, these Series 3s ever since its uh, premiere. I think it would be a feather in the cap to, you know, finally do it on P. Moriarty's because it's like the last interdependence on another, you know, another brand that I had, okay. this, this concerto. So I said if you could send uh, some instruments that I had played uh, earlier, which was the uh, 
Model 76 GL Soprano and the Model 66 uh, RGL in tenor, I think that might be a good fit. And so he flew in himself with these instruments, and uh, I went back and had him tweet. And within a week's time, I was in, uh, not even a week's time, I was in Poland, and we were doing it. <laughs> You talked earlier about finding material inside the composed sections that would inform your improvisation, which mm. sounds like kind of a fun set of parameters in which to improvise. I mean, it seems like it would almost force you to maybe out of your comfort zone a little into thinking about how you're going to improvise differently, given that you're drawing from this very specific composed source material. No, it's, it's I feel it's uh, pretty much the same, you yeah. know, because you're actually – you know, using thematic material or, you know, the meat of something that uh, is with inside the piece that you're dealing with in sure. order to uh, be able to uh, interplay on it, you know. And uh, it just made more sense, too, you know, as opposed to, like, playing something like... And then when it comes solo time, you know, and I'm crowing whatever. It's like, where did this come from all of a sudden, you know? We didn't hear it before in the piece, and then wasn't you know created afterwards so why are you doing that right you know i was saying to myself so um it just made more sense to gravitate towards certain things that were in the piece and uh one of the things that i feel that will make this piece live forever is the fact that there's still certain things that i have yet to hear in the orchestra you know and i've heard quite a, a bit of uh, things and uh that I have yet to use. So it's, I look forward to future performances of this piece because uh, the piece will continue to grow. As we're recording this, today's episode of the jazz session is uh, Maria Schneider, and she's talking about uh, some classical pieces that she's just written for Dawn Upshaw and orchestra and some of her improvisers. And one of the comments that she made was that the way that classical musicians approach time was one of the things she really had to deal with. Um, and the, the different approaches where in the jazz world she was talking about how the, you know, the beat is kind of God and everyone follows it and knows exactly where it is mm -hmm. and in the classical realm the the beat and the meter can take on kind of elastic properties i wondered if that was anything you'd had to confront in playing this concerto or other similar differences in genre i think that there were uh certain similarities uh but the main thing was the the fact that the orchestra had to grasp the fact that this wasn't just some stored piece that, you know, lasts for such and such 200 bars for this movement, 300, whatever, for the next movement. And there had to be this uh, allotment for elasticity, mm -hmm. especially along the lines of the uh, the cadenzas, you know, and not falling into a bag with the uh, the improv music that's within the particular cadence. Because uh, if they started falling into the various cues of uh, like what happened on the first, you know, performance, and if they're looking for the same thing to be produced over and over again, you know, figuring that it's for a different audience, so they, you know, mm -mm, it wasn't going to happen. So the idea, uh, the main thing was to inform that this was going to be a very elastic piece at any given time; it could go anywhere. And I think the best way that I was able to do that was the fact that we had the rehearsals. And in the rehearsals, I was able to 
stretch and show that, you know, it could either go this way one day or it could go this way the next. It could go that way or it could go, you know, or maybe I can go down this side street with it or whatever and still come back on the one. So it's about keeping your ears open. And the main thing was getting that through to the conductor, whoever it was at the time, that it could go this way. And with uh, Yarvi, who was uh, with DSO at the time that we premiered this piece, got it and went with it and ran and uh, ran to the point that uh, at the end he started dancing on the podium, you know. And as a result, it pretty much brought the house down. We redid the, uh, the fourth movement has an encore <laughs> right there on the spot. Wow. Yeah. And there was one time that we, we did it and, uh, I totally went off book off the page and everything. I kept the framework in mind, but as far as playing the actual piece, I went somewhere else with it. And, you know, and the orchestra was like, <laughs> good globbins, you know? Right. So, you know, it, it happens. So it's uh time is always important, you know, especially in terms of what you do with it, you know, and uh how you're able to bend it and you know, elasticize it and make it yours and uh make it yours along with everybody in the orchestra it was really happening once that was established. This um, has given you the chance to, uh, this record, uh, to play with Regina Carter uh, for the first time, I think, since Chasing the Gypsy, is that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, can you talk about that experience? It sounds great. Yeah. Um, it's, it was a family reunion of sorts, you know. Uh, hadn't seen each other since then. I mean, we've run into each other, you know. All right, I got to go. I'll, I'll catch you later. All right, <laughs> chill, all right, lay on and tell everybody, say hi. Mm, you know, but... To be able to let some moss grow up underneath the uh, feet for a minute and to get back into each other's musical spheres uh, was great, you know. Um, and it also uh, lent itself to the uh, the gender thing I was talking about mm-hmm. earlier, and it came to fruition in this piece, uh, Caribbean Rhapsody, where we're both double soloists, and uh, I started out with the the female gender as far as my uh, soprano playing was on the beginning movement there's like a sort of rhapsodic lament I guess you could say or you know categorize it as and uh, then there's this sort of fiesta sort of thing that's going on that in the second movement of it uh, and this is where the the celebration really comes out. I switch over to tenor, and uh, the Mac of the Hour comes in, you know, and he's hitting, you know. And uh, Regina comes along, and we're able to not only uh, deal with these uh, these gender specifications, but also we're able to exchange uh, at the end of the uh, movement where we're changing, exchanging fours or whatever with each other. And it's like, wow, you know. you know, And uh, from the one to the five, you know, uh, from C to G, we were able to um, 
just really get back into each other's uh, musical lives and all. And it uh, it was very timely, I really think. And uh, I think it comes out in the in the recording itself. You know, given the short time, it still had the the newness of you know us being reconnected, right? As opposed to doing it over a week's time or something like that. I was like, all right, you here, but you know, it's like. You know, okay, good seeing you again. Right. All right, till the next time. But there was still this, like, oh, I'm happy to see you. Come here, let me show you this right here. You know, you know, all that. The excitement was there, and I think it manifested itself as a result in the piece. It's really fun hearing the uh, the string players um, just keeping this montuno going yeah. while you guys are playing on top of it, and there's no percussion, which was a brilliant move uh i mean it's just this beautiful earthy organic sound that yeah. uh, that really sounds amazing yeah and that's another piece i really look forward to playing again too and i actually start need to start shedding on it because before i know it <laughs> somebody will be calling up saying all right we got the such and such over here the art theater or whatever the civic you know so yeah i gotta get it up underneath the fingers again <laughs> <laughs> um uh, as my final question uh, is always the same to everyone, which is, uh, is there something that you've read or a movie you've seen or something that's uh, inspired you recently that's not maybe directly connected to your own work, but that you just like to mention to other people? As of lately, I've uh, gotten back into Duke Ellington. Of course, his, uh, his 112th birthday just passed mm-hmm. on the 29th. And to that end... Uh, I reintroduced myself to the uh, Fargo, North Dakota sessions of a uh, concert in 1940. Yeah. Which uh, is definitely an epic band with uh, Ben Webster and Jimmy Blanton uh, on board. Of course, you know, the rest of the sax section with uh, Otto Harwick and Johnny Hodges, uh, and Harry Kearney, um, Ivy Anderson, um, Cootie, I mean, uh, Ray Nance being a brand new member, and we checking out and playing trumpet, violin, and singing vocal. Right. I mean, um, it was just a show and a half, you know. And to look at Duke Ellington use all of these elements, you know, of these particular uh, cat styles, um, and to hear the the banter and stuff in between tunes. Where it seemed like they were still, you know, uh, you could hear like jo- Johnny Hodges in between certain tunes playing. It was like continuous creativity was still going on, even while they were on the hit. And from what I remember, uh, the very first time I heard about the uh, Duke Ellington and Fargo was back in 1984 on. Uh, Jim Gallagher's program, Jazz Yesterday, um, he was doing a whole night on Duke Ellington. And I don't know whether it was 84, whether it, you know, marked the 10th anniversary of his passing, mm-hmm. which I'm kind of inclined to think that that's what the case was. Um, but he played most of the Fargo sessions, and he talked about how cold it was when these sessions were happening, where these cats were playing with gloves on. So... Um, so it just adds to the the mystique and uh, the legend. And uh, also to that end, the fact that the uh, William Savory sessions have come out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, at least some of them anyway, they're starting to make their, themselves seen. I need to get in touch with uh, Lauren Schoenberg and see if I could uh, hear in its entirety the clips that have been put up on... Uh, on the live streams, like, for example, the six-and-a-half-minute uh, solo version of uh, Body and Soul that mm-hmm. uh, Hawkins did with his big band. They only put, like, 38 seconds up of, <laughs> come on, man. Um, a version of China Boy that uh, Cab Calloway did. And I guess that was at the Cotton Club, and and Chewberry plays, like, the first chorus, and it's gone. Um, this tune called Shivers. That uh, was a Charlie Christian uh, composition um, that was done with Benny Goodman. And you hear him, uh, Charlie Christian, starting it out. 
I mean, um, just the idea that 78s were, you know, in vogue at the time and they were like the, you know, mode of choice for the record labels. But here's this guy using 12 and sometimes, you know, 16, 18 inch disc of uh, loom looms or acetates or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he was the first guy to use 33 and a third RPMs instead of the 78s, 20 years before it became the norm. And therefore able to, with these two uh, combinations, record larger amounts of music in these different areas that we never heard before that certainly would add to the... Uh, the legend it would take the uh, the myth out of certain legends you know uh the the session that was also on that uh, thank heavens they were able to do this of uh fats waller lewis armstrong and jack teagarten together they did a blues and they put the whole four minutes and 38 seconds or whatever on and that's magic and a half by itself man i think this was from like 1938 something like that okay so uh, you're catching Fats in his heyday five years before his passing in 43. Um, and of course, you're catching Lewis, you know, at the height of his thing, Jack T. Garden. I mean, come on. It's like, wow. So uh, the possibilities of taking some of the myth out of certain things and uh, also catching Duke, and you know, uh, in his creative, uh, the height of his creative at Pac, you know, it's like, that's what's been inspiring me as of lately. That's great. Yeah. My guest is James Carter. Uh, Caribbean Rhapsody is on the way, and I highly recommend that uh, everybody check it out. It's been a pleasure to uh, see you last night and to talk to you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Likewise. Good to be on. That's music from saxophonist James Carter. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com. While you're there, please do become a member. There are just 22 shows left until the end, unless we get 100 members by the 300th show. And that means I need you, and I need you now. So please become a member at TheJazzSession.com. Now get out there, if you would, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.